1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today we're joined by Deirdre Nikonila, a writer, musician, broadcaster, and curator from the Aran Islands off the west coast of Ireland. Working bilingually in Irish and English, she is drawn to voices, contemporary and historical especially those that have been marginalized and to what they have to say or to sing. She read music at St. Hilda's College in Oxford, went on to work at the University of Notre Dame in the Library of Congress, and is currently curating an exhibition for Rin uh, Nguelga, Department of Irish, at the National University of Ireland Galway. On the first professor of Irish there, Thomas Somalia, and also preparing an anthology of over 50 traditional songs composed in the Iron Islands from the 19th century to the present day, Her new book, Collecting Music in the Iron Islands, A Century of History and Practice, is published now by University of Wisconsin Press, and that is what we're here to talk about today. Deirdre, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you very much, Aidan.
1: So we might just jump straight in. Um, I'm I'm a historian. I I don't read a lot in the area of musicology, um, but one of the things I found um, really fascinating about your book um, is something that's very familiar to historians and yet a problem that is quite different, I sense, if you're researching music, um, that the problem of of, that you want things to be recorded for posterity and yet they're often not, um, how does that differ if you're studying music versus just reading people's letters or diaries or, or whatever it is that historians do?
0: Yeah, so for, um, for any music history, I mean, music being essentially ephemeral, you know, what happened yesterday, a minute ago, it's gone. And so the dream of trying to capture it uh, is uh, as old as literacy itself, uh, and I went back that far when I was trying to trace the history of collecting music. I was just even interested in uh, just even the idea of how can you capture something that's there in in a moment and gone again, and also what's the purpose of trying to capture it? It's that you're trying to share knowledge and pass it on, and uh, that's uh, I, I suppose uh, music. Um, historians or anybody wanting to study uh, music of the past uh, you're so reliant on uh, what has survived what has been captured and and then even the problems of uh, that being accurate or authentic just the challenge of trying to capture music before there was audio uh, technology uh, to do it so um, it's just an interesting uh, question um, and that brings us right back to the very basics of history in the first place, that we're, we're just reliant on traces. And uh, uh, first of all, I was looking for sources of music in iron, historical sources of music in iron. And then as I was looking for it, the question was always at the back of my mind, well, why why has this survived why has this come down to the present day and what about everything else that hasn't been captured and to to question the lacunae uh, that you uh, observe as you're going along Uh, so though they're the two um, I suppose uh, purposes that uh, prompted the book and and drove it forward Um, I mean I didn't set out to write this book it sort of um, it came out of the research it was all born of curiosity and uh over 20 years later here we are now mm-hmm. and um the i suppose it's transferable in the sense that uh, anybody interested in those that problem of of history of uh you know what uh what are we relying on what survives how to represent it how to interpret it uh that's very universal really for anybody studying the past in any domain whatsoever and then um then for a music scholarship, you can go even deeper into that and, and say, well, what exactly can we capture? You know, what are the nuances? What's difficult, if not impossible to capture? So the, the challenge maybe even of transcribing music. So um, for anybody researching Irish song or um Shano's song in particular, for instance, the, the challenge of trying to uh, capture that and, and measure it. And um, we see the impulses that arose in the field of sciences, for instance, to measure things that uh, fed into music scholarship as well, in um, particular in the 19th century, down to measuring notes and scents and acoustics and all of this. So it's, uh, it's very rich. It touches on uh, lots of different uh, disciplines right across uh, the humanities and the sciences. And um I, I, it just so happens that the, uh, maybe the domain that all of those questions are uh, focused on in this particular book happens to be an element of Irish history and happens to be um, Irish traditional music.
1: So I, I might maybe continue a little bit on with that, that question of like how you're operating at the intersection of, of music, musicology and history. Um, on the one hand, there's this ephemerality of music and it just as soon as a note is played, it's gone unless it's actually recorded, and yet you're you're involved in kind of studying these different case studies of people who went to the Iron Islands. So there is this desire to record um, music from this particular place. Why were they so interested in the Iron Islands as opposed to, say, the Blasket Islands or Tory or just places on the Irish mainland? Like what what specifically drew them to these pretty small islands?
0: Well, uh, there's always a fascination with the edge, life on the edge, you know, all of the explorers uh, when when the the world was imagined to be flat. (laughs) It's that there's the same impulse there. It's like, well, what's out there? And uh, and also then people may be bringing their own uh, ideas and locating them in islands as well. So um, I talk about this in the book about that being a question of perspective as much as uh, maybe origin, Uh, you know, it it might be... uh, Sort of easy to pitch it as well. This is what this is the islanders' view, and then this is the view of the other and everybody else outside. But it's more complex than that um, because we see islanders that went away writing about home, and maybe others coming and, and living and becoming part of the community. So I, I like to sort of account for that uh, nuance if possible. But in relation to your question on maybe the other islands, the other Irish islands, and islands all over the world have been, proven to be a source of fascination um, all through time. Uh, from the Greeks on and uh, but in an Irish context um, I suppose the Blaskets um, their fame or rather their emergence into uh, maybe a more um, national discourse and beyond uh, is largely thanks to the literature that emerged from the islands uh, in the 20th century Uh, there being I think it's about 25 books or so uh, that islanders were uh, inspired to um to write uh, by visitors coming in and and this uh, sense of a discourse in a way. And uh, then with Tory, um, same sort of um, occurrence there, uh, but famously it was uh, painters that the islanders uh, began to paint. And uh, in Arran, Arran, I suppose, maybe stands out for all of the Irish islands in the sense that um, it was certainly more accessible than either Tory or the Blaskets, for instance, um, as accessible, almost as as Achil, and that's another island that features in mm-hmm. in uh, this uh this sort of phenomenon but for aaron the the history is particularly rich because uh it's a place that has been inhabited for more than six thousand years continuously and uh that would be unique in itself except that evidence for much of that uh Uh, inhabiting survives in the landscape. You can be standing in a given spot on the island and look around you and see this evidence all around you and that's unusual and that's part of the reason that the I suppose the, the fame and the canon around Iron in particular uh, has arisen because uh, it was just so attractive to people to come and, and witness this and see it and study it and then also imagine that uh, not only are we seeing the traces all, all around in the material culture, but that traces might also uh, present in the uh, cultural um, expression that was uh, in the islands at any given time. And that connection feeds the urge to document that which is in the islands, whether it's folklore, uh, or stories, or history, or in this case, music.
1: Um, Maybe we could talk about a little bit more this question of like, there's something authentic there that you're getting access to, and it's sort of authentically Irish. Um, If we there, there are basically a number of case studies that you do in your book of of different collectors who go to the islands. if we start maybe first with with George Petrie and Eugene O'Curry. my first question I was going to ask about them was are they just nationalists is that really what's motivating them <laughs>
0: um i i'm not sure it would be entirely fair to to uh to to suppose lead with that um because i mean there certainly there is a national discourse throughout all of their work and and, and even the different elements of their work uh, as well um and it's of that period as well i mean the the society that was founded the society for the preservation of um irish melodies for instance i mean that's that is part of a nationalist project in a sense but maybe it's sort of political with, with a small p it's uh they're firmly in the it's an intellectual life i think that they're interested primarily um and that's uh, how it is framed any of the discussions around this kind of work that relates to the music side of it or the cultural side of it um it is about that question of uh language and history and memory um and not really um connecting directly or overtly i should say maybe to um the nationalist efforts that were ongoing at the time now at the same time you know we do see the figures that are involved in the more um overtly political side of those activities that they're supporting these kinds of works of course because it's um ideologically it it makes sense I suppose it's a it's um uh feeding that expression uh of of a particular identity and that they've so there's lots of different motives perhaps and looking back now we might try to read those motives but it's also important to um, bring as much balance as possible to try and, and assess, well, mm-hmm. you know, how how important is the political side to this? I look at that particular visit to Aaron uh, as r- maybe not entirely... Um, it's it's it is exceptional but not uh completely unique in a sense we if we look at it they're they're towards the end of their long careers at this stage and they are sort of they're they're bringing gravitas to this occasion and and being present for this visit to Aaron. there's a big conference up in dublin uh british academy for the advancement of sciences are uh, some title like that, I can't remember just now, uh, and and then they they're there for the week. They have their conference, and then it's the junket at the end of the week, and they go down for the weekend to the island with a a, a you know a vessel organised especially. Uh, Borrowed from the equivalent of the Irish Lights uh, that would normally be servicing lighthouses that were being, uh, that network was growing out uh, around the the coast. And so they're bringing 70 antiquarians into the Iron Islands. And this is the moment when really the archaeological career for Iron in the modern world. Uh, is launched Uh, called it Aaron's coming out into the modern world. And uh, so they come and they arrive and there aren't any decent roads. So uh, a ship is the only way they can transport that number of people. So they come in and they'll come ashore at a convenient landing point and then they'll climb a hill and look at uh, remains of a chapel or a fort and then back to the ship and then round the island and into another landing point. So it's a major operation. And as I say, uh, Petrie and O'Curry are there and that's uh, they're uh, uh, lending their their authority of, of the, all of their scholarship and uh, also of their uh, the, the philosophy around this, the value of it, uh, uh, giving it granting authority to uh, what is there locally, not just in the stones and uh, and the material they're seeing everywhere, the evidence of the past. But then the collecting of music uh, is also granting authority to um, the the community themselves. But there is an argument to say that uh, maybe the musical, the music that they captured on that occasion maybe is one of the few ways in which they're acknowledging the islanders of the time, of their own day, because the focus is very much on this glorious Irish past that is a vision for the nationalist uh. Uh, rhetoric of the time so it is an important element but uh maybe it's not uh it being it, it's being it's serving a different purpose it's uh, informing the activities that are happening around that time politically we'll say but the focus seems to be uh, very much in a kind of idealistic really
1: so, so there's obviously a number of different strands all running through this about antiquarianism and a certain kind of cultural nationalism, and then just music collecting. Uh, it's obviously a big event when they come. Are, are they remembered today in the Iron Islands, or uh, <laughs> how in general is this big event remembered?
0: Well, if you go and visit the Olingousa today and you pass through the Gate Lodge where the OPW count all the uh, visitors of well over 100,000 that come per annum from all over the world, you will pass an illustration up on the wall that uh, tells this, that story. But if you were to meet any Islander, they're not necessarily going to... Um, it isn't going to be a, a memory that was passed on locally mm-hmm. because there have been so many people coming, uh, before and, and p- particularly since then that, um, it, it sort of, uh, merges into this whole fabric of, uh, a flow of, of visitors coming all the time with an interest and in making the islands themselves a point of interest. Um, but it, it is, there is an awareness locally of the canon of, of people, uh capturing knowledge at different times and uh, preserving it in some way, maybe disseminating it through publication, maybe not. And uh, there is an appetite locally now to access uh, that information. And it is regarded maybe as uh, by the community as its own history. And at the same time, understood as being, you know, have a lot of the time, most of the time being written by people uh, that were visiting. Uh, and uh, so that relationship is there the, the sense of the value of history the people living with it um it's through the oral practice of memory and folklore locally that's still vital uh, but also um you know there's a huge respect for uh, literature and writing and history and all that because um the you know I, well a lot, a lot of islanders would be readers anyway as in you know they've They've uh, they've read a lot of their own writers and read read what was written about the place as well, and then of course the islands themselves. I mean, you mentioned the baskets, but Aran has its own history, very rich history of uh, literature uh, written by uh, islanders themselves, in, in both in Irish and in English. So, um, it's it's maybe not now maybe the most significant way in which that visit impacts life is the tourism industry that uh, keeps the islands going. Now it is the number one industry in the islands uh, for the last. Two, two, three decades or so. Um, and before that, it would have been a bit more uh, mixed. But um, it's, the visit isn't, uh, no, no one's going to remember that Petrino curry came to collect music. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we had a 150th anniversary of that 1857 visit where history repeated itself and the Irish Quaternary Association came out with a whole load of people and there were soil experts and uh, paleobotanists and uh, every, and people standing having a discussion on whether or not there had been a tsunami up at uh, Dundachar that explained why apparently half the fort appears to be missing. So mm-hmm. uh, th- that uh, appetite for inquiry and locating it in this landscape that lends itself to it because it's, it's there and it's all around you and it's a uh, it's very powerful for people. You know, people do really experience um, that there's a, that, that the place is um, special in some way. There's, it's a, I had a friend who came and visited. She's from Utah originally, and she's been up and down the Colorado river, uh, whitewater rafting. She's been places where she knows nobody has set foot. And she went walking around the Island and said, she said, everywhere I can see where humans have been because every stone wall, a human hand handled that stone. So, while you may be walking around in the landscape and not encounter anybody, say in the middle of February, um, it's it's been uh, deeply inhabited, and that informs that uh, practice uh, ever since. So that you get that sense in all of the source material related to the Iron Islands. Everybody has that feeling when they're there, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's feeding the uh, the whole canon, as I say, and and the activity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still uh, alive as ever.
1: So if we maybe jump ahead about 100 years or so, um, the second case study you, you engage with is, is Seamus Ennis, who's obviously, I think, maybe a lot better known as a musician in his own right, and yet also has this other career um, as a music collector. So what motivated him to go to the Iron Islands?
0: So it was his job. Um, he was working <laughs> at that time for the uh, Irish Folklore Commission, as it was called. Uh, the collection is now the National Folklore Collection housed at UCD. Uh, but that uh, commission was founded in the uh, 30s, um, the Irish Folklore Institute uh, before that. So the 20s and 30s. So this is the birth of the modern Irish state. And uh, now it's, the, you know, there's the country has its own government to uh, continue this project of uh, identity in a sense. and But it's also uh, tied in with uh, the fate of the language. So um, there, the urge was to collect and to publish and so the focus is uh, quite a bit on texts and transcription and, and publishing. And that's important because it impacts the uh, decisions that were taken then as, as the um, as the organization was being run on a shoestring. And they had to make very difficult choices like wiping cylinder recordings and reusing the cylinders again for want of resources. So it's very easy for us maybe to be critical of that um. Those activities, th- those actions, uh, we have the benefit of hindsight, of course, but um, th- that, those were the times that they lived in. But also, uh, not just the, the lack of resources, but as I say, the focus on on text and, and getting things published and and uh, you know generating a transcription. It in some ways it was acceptable. It, it was part of the uh, the the I don't want to call it a protocol, but the practice that arose from that. So Ennis was hired because. He had a combination of skills. He uh, was musically literate. He was uh, a fluent speaker of Irish and, of course, a superlative musician himself. And he had the the charisma, the uh, personal skills uh, that he could be an ambassador, in a sense, for this institution and go and uh, persuade and cajole people to uh, contribute to the project, uh, which amassed uh, an enormous collection of uh, manuscripts from all over the country, over decades, uh, I mean, it'd be one of the most uh, valuable such archives in the world, uh, certainly in a European context. Uh, and uh, so Ennis was hired in 1942. So by 45, I mean, he's gone around the country on a, on a bicycle because <laughs> it's the war and there's rations and all sorts. And um, he, it's, it's likely he, we would have had Aaron on his itinerary because it's the Gaeil and he had been in Connemara before that and he had heard mention of Aaron. So it was pretty natural that he would come. What's interesting is that he just spent, I think, overall the guts of two weeks there before, uh, you know, resuming activities elsewhere and carrying on to, to other locations, visiting Connemara frequently. I mean, he had friends there and he, he built up relationships there. And uh, I, I talk in that chapter about, um, you know, th- those motivations uh, to, to, Maybe spend more time in certain localities than others. Maybe to go back to uh, to people that um, I suppose maybe were easy to work with as well. Not to say that um, he he had any difficulty working with people in Aran, but he didn't have an easy time. So his episode in Aran, in, uh, in the whole context of his uh, oeuvre in general, is sort of a, a more everyday example. There, you know, there there are there's, uh, a lot of research done on uh, his relationship with Colm and that Rhinach Yogan, for instance, has been publishing on. Um, and a very rich scene there. But it's also interesting to see, well, what was it like when he was just with maybe uh, everybody else, not the stars, in a sense. And uh, that's what I set out to, um, to look at in Aaron. And the detail of his diary helped. There are some recordings that he managed to capture in Dublin, where he persuaded one of the singers he'd encountered in the island, um, it looks to me like he was the one to suggest she go up to Dublin to compete in that of the Smugailga, which she did. Uh, well, she went to visit the uh, there, and I don't know whether she competed, but she did attend. And what they used to do was when uh, singers came or musicians came from all over the country to participate in that event, they would bring them down to Earl'sford Terrace. uh, bringing the mountain to Muhammad, so to speak, and they were able to record them uh, on site there. And uh, that just made it easier for him. So, I mean, if he, he wasn't in the early days, uh, maybe uh, using the machine all that frequently because he was so adept at transcription anyway, at musical transcription in particular. Uh, So it's not surprising maybe to see that he wouldn't have brought the apparatus with them on corals and hookers and all sorts of weathers and risking uh, damage to it uh, I mean that's that's one possible reading of it uh, but it is it's another valuable collection because it's one of the early ones I mean you know we've 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 leapt forward as you say nearly a hundred years mm-hmm. there are other collections in between but they weren't in a sufficient uh, a state of uh, accessibility for me to uh, write um, comprehensively on them you know collections that need cataloging etc so that's how come there's a, a bit of a gap there
1: So he's coming, in a sense, as a a representative of the Irish government, or at least of a semi-state organization, um, which has a very clear mission about collecting and documenting the supposedly authentic culture of Ireland that they feel is about to disappear. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that, of of the, the politics of all this, about what gets counted as authentic or inauthentic. You mentioned a few times that some of these collectors come and they hear people singing in English and they never record that because they're singing even like quite contemporary, popular music. They, they want this, like, real, authentic music.
0: So I mentioned the resources as well. I mean, they, they, the, because the resources were, were so uh, slim, uh, the focus emerges pretty clearly that they are focusing on Irish language material. And, I mean, the fact of Ennis spending so much time in the Gaelteachtí uh, demonstrates that uh, as, as well before, he, before he's written anything down is the, the choice of where he goes. So, uh, for instance, the... Um, you know the urban areas wouldn't necessarily be as well represented in the the folklore commission uh, collections because they weren't conceptualizing of folklore as being something that uh, that belonged to an urban area at the time. The understanding was that the richest folklore was going to survive in the places where maybe the the oldest possible material would survive, and the association of that being with uh within. Irish language culture and Irish language practices and thus being drawn to Gaeltacht communities. I mean, the ghost of the famine really is hanging over this and the impact of it. It, it did inform uh, Petrie. Um, he, he spoke about it overtly and, um, Talking how it, the land of song, you know, was will have fallen silent in a way, and we we hear that that idea of silence, the the acoustic of it, um, we hear that being mentioned. So in a sense, that's uh, underlying all of this. The fear, because the reality was that uh, it was the the language was continuing to um, uh, recede in some sense. I mean, it's we can say that it changed, but the, the perception was that it was uh, receding and that um, material was being lost uh, all of the time. So the. The pressure was on. The clock was ticking, and uh, for that reason, the focus, the, the prioritisation, uh, was very clear from the start. And uh, it is part of that government project. The other question was, of course, that sometimes some of these initiatives were um, uh, drew on the Department of Education as well, because they were uh, look they had schemes whereby they were trying to provide. Uh, material in the Irish language to enable the education system to uh, I suppose function so that's in the background as well the The uh, publishing environment the, the, the other objectives are feeding into this um, and are sort of informing it so um, for Ennis then I mean his focus he, he works with the Folklore Commission for five years and then uh, moves to Radio Aidan uh, I suppose, marginally better pay for similar work and then similar move again in 1952 when he moves on to the BBC. And uh, it, again, he, there's, a, there's a, a sort of a theme there. He's, he's still essentially, you know, on a day-to-day basis, practically doing the same thing, visiting people and collecting their music. But the purpose uh, changes slightly then when it's uh, for radio as opposed to uh, for the Folklore Commission. But you can see him still visiting the same people and so we begin to see how you might get these canonical uh, performances or repertoires uh, emerging and uh, forming, you know, what we think of now as maybe the classic recordings or, or standards.
1: So we, we sort of jumped about a hundred years and if I could jump kind of in space now, as well as in time, you then switch to a person called Sydney Robertson Cowell, who's, who's a really fascinating person. Um, who seems to have very different motivations for going to the Iron Islands. Um, initially, it seems like she, she's coming from the U.S. and she feels that she's kind of identifying the original origins of, of American folk music. And then she kind of grows and develops as she goes to the Iron Islands and collects music there. Could you tell us some more about her and about her her trajectory through the Iron Islands?
0: Sure. So Sydney was born in California in 1903. And by the time she's an Iron in She comes in 1955 for the first time. At that stage, she spent 20 years on and off uh, collecting folk music. That first began with John Lomax, father of Alan Lomax, uh, through the Archive of Folk Song that was forming at the Library of Congress uh, at that time. This is during the Great Depression. So there are, through the Works um, Progress Administration, I think it's the WPA, um, there were schemes where uh, culture was being uh, I suppose, afforded an opportunity to impact people's lives and try and improve their lives uh, because uh, just there was such uh, destitution uh, across the the states and population movements, etc. So um, but quickly, Sydney, she's very different character to John Lomax, for instance, and, and Frank C. Brown, that they're the two that she heads off with initially and uh, uh, just socially and how they're she she. Uh, didn't like how they were responding to um uh, black people that they uh, met and recorded and it, it's not that they were uh, sort of intended to be in any way discriminatory in, in their behavior but just they ended up being so so she she wasn't uh, very happy with that in any case she was so independent minded herself it wasn't long before she uh, just uh, went out on her on her own and uh, was recording uh, in the midwest first and, and all over the place out to california so At that time, uh, you had maybe more and more people uh, conducting field recording throughout uh, America because the equipment uh, was becoming uh, more common, I guess. And you've different collectors, whether they're men or women, and a lot of the the women collectors um, aren't so well-known, not surprisingly, uh, but there's lots of them. And uh, for Sydney, she... I guess, observed that there were patterns, that the focus initially, not unlike the Irish context, was on, for instance, Native American nations and their cultures and also Hispanic as well, um, again, representing, I suppose, the, the recent history of, of the Americas um, from, a, uh, from the perspective of the U.S., uh, and, but then she's out in California and she gets uh, funding from the government to do a big project uh, to get a greater diversity of ethnicities uh, involved in this collecting work. So all the European migrations that had occurred, she's capturing those communities. And even from uh, she plans then to expand it to include Asians, uh, Assyrians, uh, all sorts that uh, were were there all around her in California. But then with World War II, the funding was getting redirected and um uh, it's a thoon, yes, as we say the, it, that project ended. She was looking around, looking for more work all the time. So interested in uh, that activity of collecting, and she was she was good at it. She was good with people, and uh, she had studied languages in college. She studied music as well, and uh, yeah. So she she uh, continued with that throughout that twenty year period. Insofar as she could, she married Henry Cowell, the avant garde composer, uh, in the early forties. And after that, then she's not doing quite so much collecting. So the episode in Ireland is interesting for that reason, because, you know, really she um, becomes a supporter of Henry's uh, career uh, and the the opportunities that she uh, uh, allows for herself are fewer. Henry was friends with the filmmaker Robert Flaherty. So in 1934, when they were premiering Man of Iron on Broadway and there were Iron Islanders over for that, the stars of the film, Uh, Henry had sort of chaperoned them uh, when they were in uh, Manhattan and he had recorded them at the New School for Social Research in in New York. And uh, that incident must have uh, come to mind then 21 years later when they're going to Europe. Henry's got a tour of concerts and they want a holiday in Ireland. And Henry says the one person he wants to see is Maggie Duran, the woman he'd recorded 21 years earlier in New York. And. They stayed in my grandparents' guest house. They went to visit Maggie and they discovered that uh, Maggie hadn't been recorded since and her son, John, hadn't been recorded at all. And within a week, Sydney came back to the island. She had contacts in the BBC. She managed to get a machine and she sort of abandoned Henry and said, off you go, I'm going back to Ireland. And she spent two weeks on the island then uh, recording people uh, uh, in the east and west end of the island. A year later, she was able to come back again Because by then they had got a big, um, big funding from the Rockefeller Foundation and they were going to go on this world tour, which eventually got cut short, but it meant that she was able to come back and spend six weeks in Ireland. However, she had a different machine this time and it let her down. And in the end, she was only able to record for the guts of a week, which was very frustrating. I'm sure uh, considering all the context she had built up in that time. But she, you know, at this stage, she's done it for 20 years and she just seemed to, and sort of get on with it and accept her, her fate. Um, I mean, for instance, the machine broke down when she was in Inishmoun, and at the time the ferry only ran twice a week. And then the weather is bad, and she was sick, and she thought the machine was fixed and went back to the island and it broke again. <laughs> so it's just this litany, litany of, uh, of challenges. Uh, but the recordings are valuable because they're uh, among, well, not, they weren't the very first made in and Radu Aiden had been there with the BBC in 1949. But a lot of those recordings don't survive. Uh, That's due to the institutional histories uh, in Radio Aden. And we're just really lucky that uh, Sydney's did. And uh, I was able to first work with those over 20 years ago, visiting the Library of Congress, and then 10 years ago, being able to go there as a fellow and actually uh, live there and work there and spend so much more time uh, uh, not just with those materials, but also with Alan Lomax's. And uh, she just emerges as this uh, extraordinary figure. Um, I had a lot of help in piecing together her career because, you know, there's no one book written about Sydney. And uh, uh, Cheryl Kaskowitz has been researching her. Uh, and Kathy Kirst as well has a publication coming out all about uh, that her work in, in California. So, but in terms of her overseas work, I think maybe I was, the, the first person to look at what she was doing overseas, she recorded in Iran, uh, I think Pakistan as well. And might have gone further, as I say, but for that trip got cut short. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned how your grandparents kind of pop up a little bit in this story of, of Sydney Robertson Cowell. Um, and you went, the last case study you engage in is Barbara Quinn, who's another relative of yours. What's it like to study rather than someone that you feel a kind of great sense of distance from, but actually study the musical collecting of a relative?
0: Well, you approach them in the same way. You know, you're always mindful of uh, people's um, dignity and um, I, I don't see any difference in a sense in how you'd approach them. Now, it, it, I suppose it is different when you're living <laughs> with like with, you, you know, living subjects in a sense. If you're living in the community, yes, I mean, you're 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 living with your work in, in a sense. And you will. I I really appreciate uh, the uh, trust that the community places in my effort. And I particularly appreciate as well when I, you know, they'll see to correct me as well. Uh that's, I mean, that's that's a difficult thing for somebody to come and do and say. By the way, you know, you because you, it might be taken as, as a as a critique. But I, I need that. I I need people to to trust me to receive that uh, with um uh, with grace and say, okay, yes, we can do this better. You know, because it, so it's a collaboration. I I see myself as um, sort of the facilitator to try and um, enrich the 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 the, uh, the history and uh, maybe bring some of the island's own authority in a sense and its own uh knowledge to improve what's in the the historical record so i remember um you know right up until the last minute you know whether it's footnotes or anything going to great lengths to ensure that things were accurate because that's important that's really mm-hmm. really important for a community that is being represented so much from outside a lot of mythologizing a lot of sort of tourist blurbs etc that uh, that can really wear you know that's that's uh the impact of tourism on on any community but in particular intensive tourism um is really important it's it's not i mean we hear now people talking about uh, eco-tourism but i mean there's ethical tourism to to think of as well and uh, any effort to represent the history of the islands needs to um bear that in mind i think so um it's uh I, I don't view it as sort of as an uncomfortable position to occupy at all. It's a remarkable privilege, uh, but you know, with, with that kind of uh, position, there is responsibility as well. So um, in, it's the same negotiation for anybody, you know, as as I was uh, mentioning in the book for anybody that was uh, trying to uh, contribute in some ways to the historical record. Uh, it, it doesn't matter where you're coming from in a sense. I, I think the responsibilities are the same.
1: So, y- after going through all these case studies you then provide like quite serious appendices that in a way kind of are getting at similar issues of, of of the need for accuracy um and, and particularly like trying to line up the different notes that that petri and curry or curry produced when they're in the irons can you tell us a little bit about that about Maybe it's the more like the technical work of being a musicologist.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, at this point, this is where the, the music training kicks in, you know, that, that you're uh, going through the music notation and, and reading uh, exactly what's going trying to read into it. Um, what's what's an error and what's genuine. Uh, so I was extremely fortunate in the course of this research that um, manuscript material that I was seeking actually emerged while I was looking for it, in a sense. Now, it was about six or seven years into the project, but <laughs> it's still better late than never. Um, uh, Davio Cronin, uh, recently retired professor of uh, medieval history in Galway, uh, he was out in Leipzig um, and he came upon the Stokes papers there. And amongst those were 10 songs that had been transcribed in Aaron. Um, I was lucky that he knew me, that he knew my work, and also that he recognised what he was looking at. You know, when he saw the date of eighteen fifty seven and Aaron Moore and and, and that written, because uh, I mean it's you know a handful of pages amongst stacks of pages, and who knows what the other materials were. You know, it's it's not that it was a that there was an obvious path to it, or that they had been catalogued uh, to to reveal uh, their presence. So um, that enabled me then to uh, see if we could. I suppose restore them. Marry those words with the uh, melodies that have been transcribed by Petrie. So Corey, being the Irish speaker, was able to transcribe the lyrics. They're over in Leipzig. There's actually two duplicates in the Royal Irish Academy as well, uh, of two of the songs. And then the melodies are uh, in mostly in the National Library and, and some in Trinity as well. So uh, they've they they've been studied. Um, the, you know, uh, Marion DC had uh, produced a PhD on it, and there's there's been books thereafter as well. But uh, then to have lyrics from that time like that that are actually matching these melodies is really rare uh, it, because it can be difficult. If, if the manuscripts haven't been well enough identified, it can be really difficult. The episode in Aaron was, as I say, was exceptional in that it was a one an instance of field work. We don't have that much evidence to show that Petrie and O'Corey were sort of going off into the field together. They were in Dublin. They were in Petrie's parlor um, collecting uh, from people there and transcribing material, but, but the Irish episode is particularly well identified. So that enabled it. Davi finding the material and the fact that it was pretty well identified sort of gave me confidence in trying to do this. So the first appendix tries to identify the melodies and say if there's a title in English and say, well, this is probably whichever song in Irish. So Donald O'Daly is more than likely Donald O'Daly. And so that we, we, we can take from that, well, it looks like that song was part of the repertoire at the time. And then... Where the lyrics came up, then I had fun trying to match them up with the different tunes and sort of singing the song words to different tunes to see is this is this the likely match? Maybe is this not quite <laughs> identified clearly. So it's an attempt, and it was uh, done uh, once before by Brendan uh, O'Mahony, with I think he only had one or two texts where he was able to do something similar. So this is maybe the first time that we've been able to do it with a with a batch from the same period as well uh and with the same uh singers so all of that uh analysis and uh trying to work with the music sources and uh you know uh, draw as much from glean as much information from them that's all in the first appendix and then the other uh, major appendix is a digital catalogue. So it's not in the book, <laughs> it's cited mm-hmm. in the book. And then you can go look it up on the traditional music archives website because um, I'm grateful to them being able to partner with them on this. And uh, people can go on there and search for Sydney Robertson Cowell and they'll find there's a whole um, blog post. And there's a uh, the different file formats for the digital catalogue available there for um, people to use. And it's at item level. So every single one of the uh, performances, there's over 200 of them. And there's metadata for all of those uh, where it was recorded, date, place where the person was from, titles, all of that stuff. And also, this is maybe the most valuable part. Um, the, I suppose the, uh, the additional, uh, the, the bonus that you wouldn't expect, maybe in, in uh, that kind of metadata uh, roll call. Is uh, all of the archives because her materials are scattered across uh, four or five different repositories, and I wanted to account for the duplicates uh, because sometimes you'll even get you'll have primary duplicates. You could have secondary duplicates as well. So Sydney would have talked about wanting the Folklore Commission to have copies of her recordings, also Radio Aiden. In a sense, she was doing that to I don't want to say grease the wheels, but she wanted to cultivate uh, or, or, a culture of openness and encourage dialogue across these different institutions. Uh, And that was um, one of the motives for for making that offer. But because of that, uh, for instance, the Folklore Commission have uh, one or two of her tracks. The BBC have a series of tracks that were selected by Seamus Ennis uh, to to retain there. And then the whole lot of them are over in America. But if you come along now today, say somebody wants to use one of those tracks, it's so much easier now at an item level to say, OK, I want to use this who do I approach for rights or clearing or anything like that? And I mean, there, there's archives all over the place that, uh, really they, they resist when people come asking for, Oh, can I use this, that and the other? And they'll just say, look, you have to go and figure this out. And it can be really, really difficult for people to, to find out, well, where do I go? And so for this, that resolves all of that, all the information is there, one stop shop. And that's a potential model uh, for collections in the future. Um, and it could be for any type of collection, whether it's, uh, a manuscript or a printer but for audio that's particularly useful because um, the duplicates can occur like there is loads of duplicates in Alan Lomax's collection for instance that he, he didn't make and what what I see happening now is people attributing recordings to him but it's a duplicate he didn't actually make it he, maybe he never met the person that's on the tape mm-hmm. so uh, in terms of accuracy you know that's uh, sort of at a systems level and saying well how, how do we make life easier for everyone here
1: so, I mean, that does sound incredibly satisfying to be able to put all that together. Um,
0: <laughs> well, I I don't know if if producing it I w- I would call it satisfying. It's more more like just a great huge spreadsheet and lots of uh, marks saying to be resolved or find what's the answer. To, you know, solve all these mm-hmm. puzzles. So it's the biggest jigsaw puzzle you could possibly think of. And as I say, across different institutions. And I mean, this is this is partnership that I couldn't have achieved that without. Um, the uh, contributions uh, of the various archives and archivists and uh, librarians, et cetera. I mean, well, where would we be without them? It's just, uh, it's a vital part of the, of the process. And, and that was important as well, given this work is happening in a very international setting. I mean, I wasn't always able to access uh, uh, the, the places or go and visit them. That's an experience we're all very familiar with in the last two years. Uh, and so so the, there's a, there's a community there's a there's a network there of people who are very generous with their time and their knowledge to help um, yeah ensure there's accuracy for everybody
1: So maybe if I could ask one final question. Um, you talked earlier about like almost the burden of of having to resist this kind of mythologizing and even like the cliches that exist with the iron islands and we could imagine a book like this having a very cliched cover image of you know <laughs> dunangus or stone fields or people yep. in iron sweaters yep, and yep. yet you have this very surreal image on the cover can you tell yeah. us some more about that
0: sure um i'm i'm really thrilled and, the, and i should uh, give credit to the university of wisconsin as well for, for um for uh, for uh publishing this book and also for the way that we managed to pull it all off uh, across a six hour time difference and um, um, not meeting people at all, correspondence. So the the choice of the cover here was um, really this emerged kind of through instinct. I was There's an artist from the island called Sean O'Flahertha, whose work I really like. And when I was looking for cover images, um, I stumbled on a project in which he was involved, He was the first artist to uh, contribute to a a sequential work. It's a bit like pass the parcel. So he produced an image, passed it on digitally to another artist who then added to it. So there's layers and layers and layers. So there's three different artists from Anishmore who have contributed to it. And then a whole bunch of other artists as well. The project was curated by Alana Robbins for the uh, residency scheme, the, the arts center out in Connemara in called interface Ina and the work's called carrying the songs and that's inspired by Moya Cannon's poem and there's a line in that poem uh, where she's talking about how songs move with people as they migrate and she says songs were their souls currency the pure metal of their hearts and I loved how uh, a book about collecting music uh, gets to sort of foreground in, in that in that image and be reminded that uh, you know we it's it's framed around the, the people that were maybe holding the pen or holding the microphone, but it's a partnership with the singers and the musicians who contributed to it as well and who actually carry the songs forward. And in the end, I mean Sydney talks about this, that the desire is to um to that they're sharing the same goal, that at, at the end of the day they want the music to pass on to the next generation. And my aunt Barbara Quinn, who's who's the subject of the final chapter, um, and I'm sort of coming to realize as I'm, I'm going to be, you know, the with, with the book launch in in the offing, I've been thinking about, you know, what what have I learned from all of this? You know, and I'm still learning in some sense. And more and more, I realize how her legacy in being a collector uh, working from within, in a sense, in the island, um, it's I think the legacy of that uh, has, has another life. I mean, the, the, the collection itself has is its own legacy. But in the way that it has informed this book and the arguments in the book around uh, how how and why we're collecting music, how we conceive of it, that the the first three collectors really for them for them it's it's firmly about work, it's the work of collecting. But for Barbara, a lot of it is about play and playfulness, and it gives it a completely different uh, feeling and, and sense. And so um, I'm pleased that uh, the the cover sort of evokes that sense, which is, which is captured in Moya's poem. And also in that artwork called carrying the songs and pe- people can, can look it up online to see how the image has changed over time, that, that it's a, it's alive in a sense. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with it.
1: Mm-hmm. There's obviously a number of layers there and it seems quite apt then that, that you have that for a book that is itself very layered and is bringing together all these different disciplines and referencing a very collaborative endeavor. Um, as you said, it's out now at the University of Wisconsin. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go
0: ahead. No, I was just going to say echoing what you're saying that it was organic. It was very organic. I didn't Mm -hmm. set out to write this book. (laughs) It emerged. And then that, that work as well, the, the artwork emerged and then that the the two should uh, combine it. It it ended up being really, really fitting for it. So, uh, yeah. And I mean, there's that's, it's the first, there's the next book is the song book for, for all the, uh, as you mentioned at the start. And, um, so in some ways, this is really a foundation for everything that will follow. But I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how maybe the, the stories and arguments made in the book uh, maybe uh, inspire other people in how they look at these, at other archives and, and other musics.
1: Well, I, I can definitely attest to the fact that it's a, a very excellent piece of work and it's out now with Wisconsin Press and, and very much worth checking out. Thanks so much, Deirdre, for joining us.
0: Thanks a million, Aidan.